All right, let's get started. I have the pleasure of talking right after lunch, but I am a college professor, so I'm used to people not listening, so it's all right if you, if you have to rest a bit, I get it. I was, my first six years in ministry, I was a senior adult pastor, so I'm very used to people. <clears throat> they want to listen and still go to sleep, so that's all right. Uh, so we'll work through it. Uh, if you need to stand up, walk around, stand in the back. If that's better for you, that's fine with me. It's not going to interrupt. It will not interrupt my train of thought. Uh, it may interrupt my train of thought, but I'm blonde. So I get used to those things. And so really, it's no big deal. Okay, let's talk about parenting. You have had a busy weekend. Started with marriage. Uh, looked at the role of a husband last night, and after me, I think you got to enjoy the role of a wife. Enjoy, right, ladies? You get, uh, enjoy the role of a wife, and then I think some conflict management, uh, which is good. I heard part of that. Uh, then I went out, and we got to hang out with Keith last night, and and just to hear some of the stuff he had to say, that's, uh, that's excellent. Uh, great advice. And then I know you've had a busy morning already. We're going to pick up parenting children, and we have two hours to to work through what really is a lot of material. I've, I've edited out several things, uh, but I uh, so some things you'll say, boy, you could spend a lot long longer on that. Other things you might say, boy, you spent too long on that. I'm going to try to to get us through it. Uh, <clears throat> Of four hours of material, and we'll try to put it into two hours. How about that? So that um, we and sometimes I take the same material and teach it over four days. So, right. So you're just you're getting a smorgasbord. You're getting a little bit a sampler platter of good, hopefully biblical wisdom. Uh, and so we want to do that with parenting, as we talk about the goal of parenting, and we want to be faithful biblical. Parents, right? That's the goal. Uh, here's a couple things. Actually, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get started. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the time we've had this weekend. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we start our final afternoon. Uh, pray that you would especially help us as we think through this critical component of life. Both parenting and grandparenting our children, as well as just helping people, counsel them. Uh, as they do those things, we know that the there is a burden to parenting, a burden to grandparenting, and we want to carry that burden well. We want to be faithful, and so pray that even over the next two hours we'll get to laugh some, enjoy uh, thinking through this issue, as well as. Uh, make good, appropriate application. In Jesus' name, amen. So child-rearing teaches us that we need God's help. Right? The only people that do not need God's help in raising children are usually newly married people without children and single people. Right? They don't need help. In fact, they give help. Uh, some of the some of the most dogmatic parenting advice I've ever received uh, was from single people, right? And uh, we appreciate that God gives them wisdom at such an early age without children. Uh, 
not always appreciated. Um, but for the rest of us, we need God's help. Uh, we've had five children. Our first uh, daughter died when she was very young, and we've had four since then. Uh, the oldest is 22. The youngest is 12. Uh, then, And reality is uh, my wife and I are still in progress. Uh, the stuff, Some stuff we've learned with the 22, 19, and 17-year-olds. And the 12-year-old is, it has different parents than they did, right? You learn, and hopefully you learn and, and change, right? And sometimes that happens. Sometimes it works. Uh, the 17-year-old is, has it different than the 22-year-old. Uh, I've learned, though, and some of you that are older in the room know, I just think adult, teenage children and adult children, are, it's just a joy to parent them. It has been a blessing. The older they've gotten, the more fun they certainly have become. Uh, The more expensive as well. That is, somebody asked, they said, oh, well, you live in the country. What kind of cars do y'all drive? And and we're car poor. I have a truck. My wife has a truck. My son has a truck. My one son has an Expedition and my daughter has a Yukon. That's a lot of vehicles. Right, we just trade vehicles back and forth to the mechanic, um, <laughs> but it's fun, right? And it, it's expensive. <laughs> I work a lot, so I can afford my children. Um, but in the reality of training them, we do need God's help. There's so many things um, with our children. You think about peer pressure. And it's not simply peer pressure. For when, right when I grew up, I knew 18, 20 third graders. And that was the extent of the people that I knew. Uh, but my children, they have the 18 or 20 that are in their class or 30. And then they have all the internet. Right? It's, it is a different pressure. Right? And that's, I said third grade, but that's true for every grade. Right? So what do we do... Uh, with them how do they handle authority in a world that doesn't appreciate authority nothing in the world is saying honor authority i mean if they watch any news at all and we try not to at our house as much as possible but if they watch any news at all our older children certainly are uh, they can see that for for a couple of years or at least for one whole year it seemed like the entire society was pushing back against authority we're burning city down, all kinds of stuff going on. And what do you, how do you handle that as a parent? How do you try to teach your children through it? Um, the internet, right? I think uh, some of y'all that are younger, in the parents in the room or don't have children yet, or we're counseling younger people, right? Their parenting is unique from our parenting, and our parenting is unique from our parents' parenting. My parents, we would leave in the morning. We lived out in the country. We would do our own thing all day long. We'd pop in in time when we thought it was about time for lunch. We would eat. We'd leave again. And we would play outside and around the area in the country. And we'd be home for supper. And my mom and dad didn't worry about us. It was just life. Right now, we don't want our children. We don't sit in our homes, some of us, without our front doors locked. Um, we don't just let our kids go out and play and be gone for hours. I mean, it's it's a different world. Um, 
So our parents parented, my parents parented in that, which was similar to their parents and similar to their parents, right? There's been a major revolution in the last 40 years in terms of parenting, the culture of parenting. Uh, And I would say at least we would say we need God's help, right? That's the least we could say of so we somewhere in my life with my children, right? They have gadgets, at least want to purchase gadgets or hear about gadgets when those gadgets didn't exist when my parents were parenting. I was in high school when Atari came out. And right, we had a little whatever they were. I don't know what they're I can't remember what they're called now, but right we the little uh, yeah, joysticks and what's the it was what is that thing? No, it is cartridge. I'm thinking of the game itself. The Pac-Man. What's the other one? Yeah, I can't. I don't know. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you know. Some of you that are young don't have a clue what all these old people are shouting out. <clears throat> That's all right. Uh, right, I'm just thinking of the one... Uh, the tanks, that's what, tanks and airplanes. What is that? Is that what is, where you have the tank and you shoot it and, yeah, those are crazy. Uh, right, that was high technology. In fact, we were so poor, we, I was, my dad's a pastor. We were so poor, the church people bought us an Atari as a gift, right? Multiple people went together to buy it, right? That was a, a crazy deal. Well, my children can be playing a game in different bedrooms and play against each other or be in different homes, right? Not that, I, thankfully, my kids don't do a lot of that stuff, but it's kind of a crazy world compared to when we grew up. So I can't look at my parents and say, well, how did they handle it? Well, no, that doesn't, that doesn't quite get it. Um, well, then our children and those that are having children now they're in a whole different world than what we were in, right? So there's, we have three different, right now in the, in the age of the church, in most churches, you've got four generations that at the level of technology don't hardly even mix, right? It's a whole different world. You have older folks in your church that are thinking of parenting one way. Well, brother, this is the way we did it. And you've got young people who they don't even hardly understand their language, and so, do we need God's help? Absolutely. Uh, with work ethic, I grew up in an era when you didn't play until you work. Uh, but now the average age of people getting married, for guys it's over 30. For girls it's 29.6, I think. And they're calling it extended adolescence. Basically, there's a whole nother decade of playing. So what you, what we face, right? We, I'm saying those of us who are maybe over 50 in that range. What was typical for us at 20, 21, 22 now is that's not typical till 30, 31, 32. It's, it's a whole different world. But we're trying to parent them. Physical safety. Uh yeah, there's so many things. Dating relationships, their friends. I've got just, I have just a whole list of things that 
are pressures that just make us say, yes, we need God's help. But what's important is, although perplexing, it's not impossible. And I would say it's not hopeless as well. You could say both of those words. It's not hopeless or impossible. Perplexing, again, for sure, we need God to give us wisdom. And thankfully, there are good people that are trying to help us think through these issues. God's goal for your life does not begin or change the moment you have children. I think that's good news. It's easy to think, oh, well, boy, now we have children. But, but what's been true is still true. What is that? Well, there's three things I'll bring to you remember. God desires that you bring him honor. So in parenting, just like in singlehood, just like in early marriage, or if you're a single person who's been gotten pregnant, right? Regardless of what your story is, still God's goal is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do you, what, how do you bring God glory? You bring him glory by becoming like Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 28 says all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And verse 29 tells you that purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So we bring him glory by becoming, we bring him honor by becoming like Christ. And God knows you're not perfect, but he does expect you to be growing. Second Peter 3.18 says, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So these things are not new when you have parents. Pardon me, when you have children, when you become parents. No, God's goal has been that and continues to be that. So what would we say is part of the challenge of parenting today? I, I really like 2 Timothy 3. I've actually sat down with my children. I'll tell you a funny story. In a recent election... After a recent election, we were sitting down as a family. All six of us were there. And I re- referenced Second Timothy 3. It says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. And you read that. And verse 13 says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. And you read those. And you realize that in this text, Paul is actually talking about these are people that are associated with the church. Right? This isn't even in the world. So if this is in the world, how much worse, pardon me, if this is in the church, how much, how much worse is it in the world? And so I was talking to my family about this after a recent election and I was waxing eloquent as a godly dad does, you know how that goes and, and they're all listening and I'm getting a variety of looks and, and so I looked to my wife expecting her to be in awe, of course, of this, the wisdom of her husband this, that's dribbling out and she's laughing. And I'm thinking, I'm talking about how bad the world is and how Jesus surely will come back soon. And she's laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? 
She said, you said the same thing when Bill Clinton became president. (laughs) Well, I still believe it. That's the bottom line. I still believe it. (laughs) Uh, So the challenge of parenting, right? And it is a challenge, right? In the church and outside the church, right? It's a local homeschool. A co-op, right? We've we've had our children. Our children, uh, it's a mix. Some of them, every year we decide if we're going to put them in school, do co-op, do other things, uh, and we make that decision per child every year. And and so, depending on the child and their circumstance, we've made decisions. But for all, it seems like the last thirteen or fourteen years, we've always had children in co-op at in one way, at least one or maybe uh, several. And so, it's a great co-op. Uh, godly folks for all these years and right, you would anticipate that's a safe a good safe place right is a large co-op at a church in our area and this is our first year out and about a month into school uh, i start having parents people that are in our church call and say hey can you help us think through this um, and this co in this co-op there's several children in it who are telling all the other kids that they're trans. And, and, and the reason I bring that up isn't to bash on those kids, but just to simply say there's not like a safe zone. You can send them, you can homeschool them and use a co-op to try to help you, and they're just in as much difficulty as if they're in a public school. Maybe somewhat different. Um, but it's the challenge of parenting. The comfort, though, is what? In this same text... The comfort is when Paul says, hey, you've got a sufficient word. Right? God didn't leave you hopeless and helpless. God has given you his word. All scripture. And he talks, of course, you've continuing the things what you've learned from whom? Well, from your childhood, from your mother and your grandmother. We get that out of chapter one. From Lois and Eunice. And so it says, all scriptures given by inspiration to God, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, so that the man of God will be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the comfort of parenting is the fact that, that God has given us his word to help us. I don't know why that one came in first, but you can skip a line and write it in if you want. The prerequisites to parenting, I'm going to suggest, are Ephesians 1 through 5. Let's get that other line in. What is the goal in parenting? It is to become a faithful parent. And I have listed there page 4. That's out of Stuart's and Martha's great book on the faithful parent. I would encourage you, if you're counseling or if you have children, to read it. It's a good book. But I think you have to understand that the prerequisite to parenting is the first five chapters of Ephesians. We don't get to Ephesians 6 where it says, So children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that you will live long on the earth. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's our go-to text for parenting. We'll talk about that text over the next two sessions. 
But we don't get to that text without the rest of Ephesians. Right? That sits in a particular context. Critical, let me just, uh, just a broad view, right in Ephesians 1, after you get through the introduction and then an anthem of praise for God's redemptive work, you get a table of contents or a Thanksgiving section that says, hey, this is what you're, we're, we're grateful for. It identifies what's coming. And in chapter 2, in three portions, we learn about the call of the gospel. Right? You've been called to salvation and sanctification. You get the context of the gospel. That is, it's inside the church, God's new people, 2, 11 to 22. And then you get in chapter 3, the capacity, the, the ability related to the gospel. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you learn the gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You get to chapter 4, verse 1, and that's the challenge. And that's where the book switches to application. He says, so therefore, based on those things, live worthy of the call. What call? The call to salvation and sanctification. And so he begins to work through what living worthy looks like. In chapter 5, specifically, in verse 15 of 5, he says, So walk carefully, live carefully. All of the second half is divided in the word walk. Right? Walk worthy, walk in unity, walk consistently, uh, walk in love, walk in light. Walk circumspectly is 5.15. And he describes what that means. And the ultimate ending is being filled with the Spirit. Right? When you're filled with the Spirit, you can anticipate living life this way. And that's chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 in terms of parenting. Well, part of that is chapter 5, 1 and 2. When it says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Right? Parents must love their children with Christ-like love. No doubt that is a great challenge for each one of us. And it's incredibly important in a world as we talked about, that is so challenging. Your children need your love. Right? And as your counselees, I'll keep saying your, but for your counselees, the same way. Right? Your children need your love. Your counselees, as they work with their children. Right? I have in your notes, love, practical care, and involvement. We're going to flesh that out more as we move along. But it's so important. Why? Because they need to know the love of Christ in a world that is loveless, in a world that's a dangerous place, a hard place. They need to know what it means to have the love of Christ. And the home is the place they should get that. Just like the husband loves his wife, we talked about it last night, like Christ loves the church, it's important that the mom and dad love the children like Christ as well. So it's important as well, that's going to include relationship building. Right, it's a old statement, been passed around for years, but it says that they will not know care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right, and there is a part of that that we need to be aware of. 
Right? We need to build a relationship with our children such that they are willing to listen. I do a talk on teenage years. And in that talk, I say that one of the key elements of parenting a teenager is to help them realize they need wisdom. To, that what you say is important and they need to listen to what you say. Well, the only way you're going to pull that off is if you've developed a relationship. Right? We're going to say lots of hard things to our children. They're going to disagree with our worldview at times. It's going to go against everything they read online, what they hear around other teenagers, even the Christian ones. And so as they face those challenges, the relationship with the parent is what anchors them, especially if that relationship is founded on the love of Christ. Because part of the pull against the part of the push, maybe I should say, against depravity is a relationship they have with people that truly love them and demonstrate it often. So that when they're contemplating, what should I do? There is a safe area, and that is in the home around their parents where they are truly loved and they're loved like Christ. They have a relationship that's based on that particular love. So I think it begins with Christ-like love. Number two, the attitude of the parent. What is your attitude toward your child's problem? Let's just get a couple of examples. I think we have several here. The first one is the impatient parent. Right? The impatient parent says, well, why me? Right? Of all the kids, there's 8 billion people in the world, 7.9. And God gives me this one. Right? Why? Uh, what's the reason? I have a right to a problem-free child. Right? Why? That's the attitude. This child has no right to bother me. Right? Of all the things I have to do today, this is the last thing I need. A squeaky-willed child. And what? This parent forgets that the child needs to be brought up, needs to be trained. I remember a parent, this child was there, I think the girl was 12 turning 13. And the, this dad told me, well, when she turns 13, I'm done. In the Bible, that was about when they were old enough, I'm done. I'm tired of it, I'm finished. Um, that's an impatient parent, right? Nope, you got a few more years, bud. So, what about the passive parent? Ah, it's no big deal. It's just a stage. Just a passing stage. Every year can be that. Uh, or what about the parent says, oh, my child would never do that. It's hard to even believe that you would suggest that. Uh, or the one, usually this is with smaller kids, but oh, it may be wrong, but it sh they sure are cute. Right? That, some of you may be there. Uh Yep, but still wrong. Oh, he's too young to learn. Right? So that's a parent that's not engaging well in the teaching early uh, because they think they're too young or I don't know what I will do. Right? And because of that, they're, they relax. They are not engaged early enough and often enough. Uh, so that's the passive parent. 
Or you could have the biblical parent's attitude. And I think the three things that we could say here, one is that God uses trials to help our child and help the parent. Right, so God's going to bring pressure. James 1, 2 says, count it pure joy when you fall into various pressures. Why? Because the pressure is doing something. Right, as they undergo that pressure, God is building character in them that he knows that they need. Let God continue his work in you toward the goal. Right, God is working in in our children, God is working in us in the process of parenting. It's easy to forget. My children certainly have not been perfect. Uh, they're more like their mom than I anticipated. No, <laughs> that's a bad joke. I really need her to travel with me. It keeps me honest. All right, so my children are more like me than their mom. They're certainly not perfect. And when I hear or when they come to me and when they say, hey, this is what's happened. My first thought has to be judged by the fact that God is using this trial for them and for me to help us both become like Christ. And that helps you not get too angry, helps you not get too overcome by the whatever the difficulty of the day is. Why? Because in James 1... God is using these things to build wisdom in them and us, to help us be able to become a faithful person. And so the biblical parent accepts that God uses these things to fulfill God's purpose in them and in us. So then what are we to do? What's our charge from God? That's the text that we've already read. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. That's to the children. And then to the parents, it's, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So it's to fathers. Now it includes both. Um, right, that's, that is... Uh, true but the text itself is to fathers and the question sometimes we say well why single dads out Uh, let me suggest two things Uh, the line you're looking for there is headship right because the dad is the head but I think there is a grammatical reason that it's primarily to fathers here let me explain that to you see in chapter 5 it says to walk circumspectly that's verse 15 Then in verse 18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. And then in verses 19, 20, and 21, we have five participles. Just bear with me one minute so I can explain it. So speaking, singing, making melody, being grateful, and submitting. All of those are participles that follow what? This command. Which grammatically, what that means, that if you're obedient to this command, these should be the result. Right? They're called resultant participles. So why is this important? Because he says, walk in the Spirit. This is what should naturally be happening in the person who's walking with the Spirit. And then you get 
to verse 22, which you've all read last night and as we talk through 22 33, both men and the women. That is what's known as, I didn't mention this last night, but it's known as what's called a household code. It was a particular way when in this century, the law would allow the landowner, who was a man, to write the rules for his land. It was his code. It was per household. And so you would write the rules in this house. This is the way everybody should respond to whom? To the man. It was very self-centered, very selfish. And there were all kinds of sins that took place in households. But it was legal because of these things as household codes. But they were written by unbelievers. They were written by a bunch of rascals. And so all kinds of sin took place. So when Paul says, but now walking in the spirit, you're going to submit to one another in the fear of God. When he begins to explain, so what does submitting one to one or to another in the fear of God, what does that look like in practice? He deals with the wife and husband in verses 22 to 33, with the children and parents in verses 1 to 4, and then with bondservants and uh, masters and slaves in verses 5 through 9. In each one, it begins like a very normal household code. If a man had written it, it would include the wife. So wife, do this. Submit to your husband. That's not news to anybody. Right? They all hear that. But what does Paul do? He says, oh, by the way, and the reason you do that is because you're worshiping Jesus. Right? That's a whole different way to think about submission. But then he says, and husband, right? At that point, the husbands are like, yeah, Jesus just makes what we already do normal. But you get to verse 24 and it says, or verse 25, husbands, well, you need to love your wives, what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Selflessly, sacrificially. Right? That's total news to a husband. No husband did that. But in Christ, we should. You get to chapter 6. Children, obey your parents. The men are like, oh, thankfully, we're back to, back to normal. Right? Honor your father and mother. You get to verse 4, and what does Paul do? He goes right back to the dads. He says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Right? He says, no, in Christ, we're going to do it differently. You're not going to threaten. You're not going to do those things. But bring them up under training and admonition of the Lord. So that's why it's to the fathers, because in a household code, the father was the author, and Paul is flipping that to say, this is the way you used to live, but in Christ it's going to be different. Right? We're going to switch that. And so that's why we have here to the fathers. But we do know there are two parents involved, not just one parent. It's written to both the mom and the dad. It's written to parents generally. So what is, what do we learn? Well, parents, the goal is to bring them up. The goal is to bring them up in chapter 6, verse 4. Do not provoke your children to wrath. We're not going to say much about that this because we don't have time, simply. There's a lot we could say about parents who 
help their children become angry. Um, and the goal is to not do that. But instead, we want to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So, what do we get in this text? And by exegesis, we're just talking about the verse itself. What do we learn in this voice? Well, notice it's active voice. And it indicates continual action. And it's you bring them up. Right? That's who's bringing them up. It's not passive voice. I know that we've heard in the past that it takes a community. And it may certainly take a community to help. They can come beside a parent. But the command is for the parent to bring them up. Right, so it's not parent that they ought to be brought up by the church or be brought up by the culture or be brought up, brought up by the state. No, it's the parent is responsible. And it's not middle, which would be you bring yourselves up. Right, children aren't left. I, there's a yes parent. It's, there's a, uh, a very popular way to parent right now where people would say, you just need to be a free-range parent. Right? You need to be a yes parent. Never say no to your children. Let them just kind of do what they want to do, free range. And that's the best way to bring up children. No, that's, that would be middle. That would be you bring yourself up. That's not what this text is teaching. This text is saying, no, the parent is the one that is responsible. And this is consistent with other key passages like Romans 5 verse 12. It says, therefore, justice through one man, sin in the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned, including those beautiful children that we have. Right? So our children are sinners, and they need help. Proverbs 22, verse 6, says, train up in the child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And it also says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Right? So it's our responsibility to help. It's present tense, which means it's a continuation. It's a continual action. We don't parent one day and never parent again. No, it's constant. And the older your children get, the more you realize you, you, parent, you continue to parent just from a different way. It's present tense, and it's an imperative, meaning it's a command. So it is active, present, continual command. And what's the goal? The goal is active, not passive. On your notes, it's, it's important just to understand that we are doing our best to help raise our children for the glory of God in a world that they desperately need it. Right? We are depending upon the Lord. But we realize passages like Matthew 28, it says, Go therefore and make disciples. Where does that begin? It begins in our homes. Teaching them to observe all things. Colossians 1.28, Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Some of those people are in our homes. Right? We want to help them. Spiritually grow to be the kind of people that honor the Lord. Here's a question. Uh, Proverbs 22 verse 6. Let's just mention it since we're here. 
It does not mean that if you punch the right buttons, you'll automatically have the right product. And it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Right? Generally, good parenting results in good children. Further, bad parenting results in bad children. But that's only general. Every child has an active heart. So can you help them? Of course you can help them. But that doesn't guarantee anything. I had a lady come in to counseling and she said, I followed all the rules. And my children, this is what's happened. And my heart broke for her. Because she misunderstood. She was so disappointed in God. She misunderstood the biblical goal. Even when you follow the rules, there are times that you're going to do your best and your child is still going to disobey. Still going to not honor the Lord. Um, may deconstruct their faith. You say, well, I can keep them from it. The problem is you can't keep them from everything on the internet. It's impossible. And, and do normal parenting. Right? It's, it's an almost impossible goal. And so there are people out there. Why is it that Christians don't mind being passive and they don't get too upset if their neighbor goes to hell, but many neighbors, if they hate the church and hate people, they're wanting for, they want for sure for your children to know about it and try to drag your faith down with theirs. Right? There are people out there that are after our children. It makes me highly upset. Um, Individuals who used to be associated with VeggieTales now on a YouTube channel deconstructing their faith and kids that have grown up watching them listening to it. It, it bothers me deeply. And I realize it's just part of spiritual warfare. It's just part of what it means to be a parent and a grandparent and we've got to fight it everywhere we can. But what it means is broad sense you can do all you can do but at some point you can't make their decisions but can god bless your goal yes he can bless your goal and the best model for it is the bible model and it's the model of christ right he only has one model jesus is the best way to help us, our children, grow and learn to become more like Jesus Christ. The challenge for us is, is he our model? Right? Is he your model? Is he the counselee's model? This is where we want our counselees on board to say, hey, I, I need to do it God's way. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Right, so is he your model? Are we leading in serve as a servant? In Luke 2, he was in submission. So do we lead in that way? And then Jesus was a missionary. Right? And those we could have all kinds of verses here. But we just look at that and say, Can God bless our goal and how are we helping get there? Let's move just to a few of these questions of issues that complicate parenting. Right, and we're going to deal with these before we move to instruction. Let me mention about 
four of them, five of them. First, do not exasperate your child to a wrathful lifestyle. Certainly, it says that in Colossians. Even here, it says, do not provoke them to wrath. So don't exasperate the child. What else complicates it? Well, if mom and dad fail to solve problems, that complicates it. If mom and dad are not working hard to be God-honoring parents... What does that mean? That means that mom and dad need to be willing both for the children but toward each other where the children hear it. Learn to say that, to seek forgiveness. Learn to admit that they're wrong. I counsel kids, right? I'm in a college ministry as a faculty member and I hear kids say all the time, I hear it in premarital counseling, I never ever heard my mom or dad apologize for anything. They've never sought my forgiveness. Well, it doesn't mean that they're great parents. They've sinned over and over because we all do. But if you don't solve problems godly as a mom and dad and with your children, how do you expect them to do so? It complicates it. Inconsistencies in parents. They say one thing but do another. That can exasperate your children. Easy to do, no doubt. Failure to establish and build relationships with your children. That can complicate it. And I know we're broad brushing here because we need to get on to instruction. But inconsistencies in discipline. Right, The child never knows what day it is and what to expect. So all of those things complicate. All of those things can bring... Children to wrath. We don't want to do that. What do we want to do? Well, notice it says, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So let's talk about instruction. This is such a fun, this is fun to think through. Of all the ways that we can help instruct our children for the glory of God. And so what are some of the things we can learn about instruction? And the word instruction here in the text would just be in the admonition of the Lord. Well, let's ask this question. What are, uh, admonition is the word that I just mentioned to you, right? It puts it into their mind. It gets them thinking. And so what are biblical motives for instruction? Let me provide you several, four First, we need to recognize you're responsible for God and must give an account. Right? You're responsible. No one else is responsible to parent your children. Now, as grandparents, yes, we come alongside, but we're the ones responsible. Who are the teachers in your child's life? Well, there are lots of people that are influencing your child, but as the adult, you are the one responsible. Right, Deuteronomy 4, we are the one that are supposed to train. It says, and these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, shall, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, essentially all the time. Right? It's our responsibility. We're the one responsible. That's Deuteronomy 6. 
6 and 7. In Ephesians, the text from Ephesians is there, which is the one we're talking about. Here's the second one. Recognize your child has a sin nature and must be taught. Your child has a sin nature. Is that an understatement? Yeah, sometimes. Right? There's a lot here related to our children. And they do have a sin nature and they do need to be taught. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And it's our responsibility to help them grow in that. Um, And so your child has a sin nature. Notice there's a couple of things here in your notes. It talks about the world's view. Right? In the world's view... They would teach you what? Well, it depends which perspective of psychology you're talking about. But one of the big ones is that everybody has a little light inside. Right? And your child, if given the right environment, your child will grow up and flower and be just a great person. Again, humanistic psychology would say that among other things. We could talk through all five perspectives, but they're, gonna, they're not going to view your child as having a sin nature. They're going to take the responsibility of wrong and they're going to change wrong to something else, call it false guilt many times, and they're going to blame it on other things. So it could be their biology, that's the problem. So you give meds for that. It could be their bad thinking, so you need cognitive uh, help. It could be bad, uh, a bad environment. Behaviorism works with that. It could be um, that you've not nurtured them well, and that would be humanistic psychology. All the perspectives take away the responsibility and get put it, place it somewhere else. So your child has this in nature and must be taught. Notice, recognize that God's way is best, and it's essential to the blessed life. I love Psalm 1. Right, Psalm 1 just simply describes, oh, the happiness of the person. So we want to help them learn that. It says that they do not walk in the counsel of the godly or stand in the way of sinners or seat, seat, sit in the seat of the scorner. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law does he meditate day and night. Right, that's the blessed person. So God's way is best. Number four, recognize we are teaching with a goal in mind. We want them to know God's goal for them. The goal is the Ephesians 6-4 goal we just talked about. But it's, right, there's so many other ways to say it. Right, so we teach with the goal in mind. So those are the four things, the motives for good biblical instruction. So you say, well, I'm convinced... I think it's important, so how am I to do that? Well, the first answer is all the time. I read you Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 earlier. Right? It's constantly standing up, sitting down, laying down. All the time. We're teaching our children. God's plan, clearly, is that fathers and mothers must be teachers. Proverbs 1.8, 
It says in one seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it says, so what? Listen. In chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, it says it over and over and over. Listen to your, my son, listen to your father's instruction. Listen to your mother. Parents are teachers. We teach and we live out the word of God. On the way to school, we teach. One of the things that we do in our home, uh, we, our driveway faces south, and so the sun comes up to the east. And so as we pull out, uh, we back into the garage, as we pull out, uh, often, this time of year especially, the sun is just hitting the horizon as we're leaving to go when we take them to school. And my oldest son, uh, he had football practice, and so it wasn't uncommon to, to leave a bit early. And so I would often just tap the brake while the garage door went down, and I would say, hey, son, do you hear that? And he eventually figured out when I asked that question, that means we look at the sunrise and we say, yes, I do hear it. What? The heavens declare the glory of God. Right in that moment, I want to take capture that second and remind him that today is lived before a God. Right. So I want to remind him of that. And you do that all the time. Right. It's constant ways to view teaching. Uh when he turned 16 or 15, he was just, he had a driver's permit. I was picking him up at school. He said, hey, dad, can I drive? I said, sure. So I t- pitched him the keys and he got in the vehicle and and we're in Ozark. Everything's kind of on a hill somehow. And and so the football parking lot is like this, pointed to the west. And that particular evening, uh, we, were facing the, we were facing uphill and... I wasn't paying attention. I was just getting in my seat and getting adjusted. He started, put it in drive. He started to pull off and he slammed on the brakes. And I jumped, not, not paying attention. And knowing we're in a parking lot, I thought, what's getting ready to happen? And we're facing straight west. And at 15 years old, he said, Dad, do you hear it? <laughs> and the sun was going down. And I just said, oh, Lord, help us. Right, that somehow we can take the glory of God and put it so deep in their soul that when they see a sunset, their first thought is, that's the glory of God. Right, that's what we're trying to impart into our children so that they understand it and see it. In our, in our home, we, do, we, don't do, we don't do two ears of anything. If they listen to something, it has to be just one ear. And we do that so that when we're in the car or wherever we're at, we can talk and still have a conversation, uh, even though they might have music or something playing. And, and so when we see sunbeams in our family, anytime we see sunbeams we, and somebody notices it, we say, hey, look, there's sunbeams. And everybody in the car then can hear it and you immediately know we associate those sunbeams with... Uh, Somebody that we know in heaven, right? So it's a providential way to be reminded about heaven, to be reminded about the people that live in heaven. And so uh, one day I was driving wet, driving south toward home from Springfield uh, toward Ozark. And I look in the entire west sky. It's full of sunbeams, right? From one side, all the, as far as you could see, the entire horizon. So I stop. 
I actually get on, pull off on an exit, go over the road, the road that they crossed it, get on the entrance, pull off and stand up on the side of the vehicle to grab a shot because I was going to send it to the rest of the family on our chat and just say, hey, look what I, this is gorgeous. Look what God's given us. Um, and so I was grabbing that picture. And so I'm on the south side of an east-west road on the entrance ramp. I look back, so I'm taking this picture. I look back across the exit on the, on the north side, on the side of the road, I see my wife's vehicle and my kids had seen all of those sunbeams and they said, let's pull over and send dad a picture so that he'll remember. <laughs> right? That's what we're hoping for, isn't it? Right? Somehow to take the glory of God and connect it with the heart of our children and do it not once or twice, but do it over and over and over and over and over. Right, so certainly we are the most imperfect parents. But there are moments we get it right. And that's the goal for all of us. We want to teach all the time, right, because we are teachers. The greatest teaching ever done was Christ, and that was the show-and-tell method. He walked with his disciples. He taught them as he walked. Some of the stuff I'm talking to you about is the way Jesus did it, right? He Lived life with them. We live life teaching. I'm thankful I had a dad who trained us in similar ways. We do our best to connect what's happening in life with what is true about God. All right, let's talk about some of those ways. First, let's talk about question and answer. There's several things that pulled up there. By question and answer, that's one way that we teach. The first one there is to use natural curiosity. To use natural curiosity. Right when a pet dies, there's some examples there. When a pet dies, a grandma, grandma's asked, well, why is it not breathing? That's a great opportunity to teach. Why do I have to go to church? Why do I have to eat my spinach? How did trees get here? Where do babies come from? Right? All those questions that children ask. Those are opportunities to teach. What? Because we want to learn. We want them to learn Christ. That's what Ephesians says. We want them to have God's view of the world. We want to give them a lens, right? As they look at the world around them, we want that lens to be a God-oriented lens. Because we are under the influence of our worldview. My granddad and I and my twin brother, we went, our family, we go hunting, dove hunting. You go out in the cornfields and hunt and inevitably they're a little bit dusty. And so on this particular day, My brother and I were too young to carry our own guns, so we were with granddad and we were sitting behind him in a in a fence line and he was looking uh, to the north in this particular field. My dad was across the field. My brother was up here and other persons over here. And and so we're in this dove field and throughout the day when my granddad was looking to the north, 
it was not uncommon he, we would see him shoot. And, and he would say, well, there's doves all over your dad. I don't know why he's not shooting those. And he'd holler out, my dad said, Marvin, they're behind you. And my brother and I, were just, we were little, but we were just confused. We could not figure out why does he keep shooting them and why does he keep missing them, right? He's a good shot. It's so unusual. And then my brother and I realized that he had a piece of corn dust on his glasses so that when he was looking at a particular way north and the sun was over here in the west, that when he would move his head, it would look, he would see out of the corner of his eye this dove that was not there. And he would shoot. He shot all afternoon. My brother and I saw it. We didn't tell him because it was just too, right? This is incredible, right? So he shot all afternoon at doves that weren't there, right? Well, fun story. What was the problem? The problem was he was under the influence of something on his lens, right? When you engage the world, when our children engage the world, they engage it through a worldview. And that worldview determines what they see. So through natural curiosity. How about through normal life circumstances? Well, did we get all of those? Stimulate curiosity. Did we say that? Stimulate curiosity. That's letter B. My apologies. I got ahead of myself. It says there, there's an example. Do you know the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? Do you know how to be blessed? Write those types of questions. And then letter C, be willing to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. Right? Don't, it says there in your notes, don't snow your child. Don't give them false information. Even though you might find it entertaining, they won't appreciate it over time. Right, if you don't know something, be honest about it. But use those opportunities of natural curiosity to talk with them. All right, we're going to take it's two thirty.